Thank you for joining us for another Carlton Fields podcast. In this podcast, which has been adapted from a webinar, a panel of Carlton Fields attorneys will discuss issues affecting lenders during this unprecedented pandemic. Attorneys Alexandra Bly, Donald Kirk, Rick Gross, David Karp, and Ray Van will provide updates on the civil court system, tools to use during the crisis, labor and employment issues, and government takings of private property for public use. It won't surprise anyone to know that the first plaintiffs have filed takings lawsuits over an order issued by the governor of Pennsylvania shutting down non-essential businesses. In federal court in Pennsylvania, a putative class action was filed under the takings clause and under theories of substantive due process and procedural due process. And I'm sure we will see, as time goes on, more such lawsuits. But I think a realistic assessment is that these lawsuits are long shots and it's probably going to be very difficult to to prove or to establish because the law is pretty clear that the government in the exercise of its police power can um, issue all sorts of regulations and emergency orders that impact businesses and property without having to do, without that constituting a takings under the Fifth Amendment. And so, I mean, going back to the early 1900s, the, the Supreme Court has said that when the state exercises its police power, there is no takings and there's no need for the state to provide compensation for um, those actions. I mean, I would divide the cases out there into sort of two broad categories. The first category being businesses that are impacted by the state shutdown orders. Those have, those have steep hurdles to climb in terms of bringing any taking claims. The second broad category would be specific instances where the government commandeers a private business, be it a hospital or a hotel, to use that private property for treating or storing COVID-19 patients. In those cases, I think the patient's claim has a better chance of success because it's a specific incident where the government, not through a regulation, but through an affirmative action, actually physically occupies private property, either permanently or temporarily in many cases. And so those claims, may be feasible, but we have yet to see see that done on a widespread basis. Rick? David, what is the federal government doing in regard to this? So the federal government, from what we've seen, and of course this is changing every day, has not um, engaged in commandeering of private pr- property on a large-scale basis. Um, in California, there's been one instance incidents that we've read of of the state and the federal government working cooperatively to use some medical, some hospital facilities. Um, But that's that's fairly limited. Really what what the government has done so far is just invoke the Defense Production Act, which really raises a different set of legal questions than it takes. Of course, all of this might change next week or tomorrow, depending on what happens. But that's the state as we know it today. Okay. And how many states, again, are uh, doing this right now, roughly? Well, it depends how you view 
the action. I mean, most states have issued some sort of shutdown order, in at least in, in certain parts or localities. Um, in terms of commandeering private property, I mean, California has been the most prominent in issuing an emergency order asserting its right to do so. Although at least so far where the state has done so, they've worked out compensation arrangements with the private property owners and businesses. We would expect more states, particularly New York, where the situation is really acute to follow suit, and we're tracking that each day. Okay. David, thanks. Um, Alexandra, what's the current state of the court system? Yeah, so the state of the court systems is obviously varied by each court significantly, and of course, uh, anytime anyone's dealing with a case in any court, it's important to consult the specific court's website. Fortunately, all of the courts are linking on their front home pages to the most recent updates and administrative orders. But just to give a general sense of things, both at the federal level and amongst the statewide courts across all states, um, majority of courthouses at this point have closed to the public at a minimum. If they're open, they have restricted access to the public. Um, many of the employees of the courts are teleworking, and there's really only skeletal crews uh, at the courthouses to perform essential services. And those essential services uh, typically include items relating to criminal cases, mental health matters, and domestic violence cases. Um, across the country, both at the federal and state level, jury trials have been continued. Um, some only continued through April. Some continued through May or June. It just depends on the court. Um, judicial discretion has been given across the country to judges both in the federal courts and the state courts to continue holding hearings, conferences, and bench trials. And they've been encouraged to do that telephonically or using video conferencing. So many courts now are implementing those procedures. Um, there's also been changes, for example, in, in Florida, the Florida Supreme Court is allowing for the remote administering of oaths, which has helped to enable taking evidence or testimony remotely via video, video conferencing so that witnesses can be sworn in. Similarly, that procedure allows for remote swearing in of witnesses for deposition. Um, and at the appellate level, a lot of the appellate courts have either suspended oral arguments for the time being, many through April or beyond. Um, some appellate courts, for example, the 11th Circuit, is still conducting oral arguments, but they're doing it via audio or teleconferencing where it's feasible. Um, so that's, you know, is a broad overview of what's happening across the federal level and the statewide level. Um, just to key in on one particular type of court, the bankruptcy court, since that's a venue where we might see a lot of issues playing out over time, given the impact financially caused by COVID-19 to a lot of businesses. Um, just to give a brief update on that, the bankruptcy courts are all open and operating. Filings are continuing. Uh, the courts are routinely conducting telephonic hearings, which was a process that the court already had in place prior to this crisis. Um, it's now being used even more so the bankruptcy courts are even allowing in certain jurisdictions for evidence to be taken remotely via declarations filed with the court um, so that evidentiary hearings can be scheduled if necessary to 
occur telephonically or by video deposition. The bankruptcy courts are also allowing pro se filings by fax or email, um, whereas typically in the past it had to be in person. Um, the courts have also suspended original signature requirements for documents that typically had to be signed, uh, signed originals by the debtor previously. And the courts are um, continuing the first meeting of creditors, known as the 341 meeting, in order um, to try and reschedule some of those hearings there. They've continued them, or in some circumstances, they've allowed them to go on telephonically. And one important consequence of that is within bankruptcy proceedings, a lot of deadlines are tied to the first date set for a 341 meeting. So what the bankruptcy have done to address the deadlines affected by the date of the 341 meeting. They've issued administrative orders to make it clear deadlines tied to that date are now tied to the rescheduled date of the 341 meeting. And that'll come into, into play affecting deadlines for claims to be filed by creditors, deadlines for creditors to object to discharge or dischargeability. Um, and deadlines for a debtor to perform under their statement of intention filed with their bankruptcy case. So that's a pretty broad overview of a lot of the changes we're seeing. Thanks. Um, are there any sp specific types of technologies that the courts are using to get the system going? Uh, telephonic hearings, uh, certain methodologies, or certain types of video conferencing? Yeah, so in a lot of cases, the courts are using court call and court solutions, which were major telephonic hearing providers that have been widely used, uh, at least at the federal court level, prior to this pandemic. Um, that's now being adopted by more courts, including at the state level. Um, and sometimes it's been as simple as just judges providing call-in numbers for the parties to dial into. On the video side of things, um, it seems like at this point, Zoom is is being used most widely for video conferencing. But uh, it's been a cer certainly a patchwork, and many courts are training and trying to determine right now what technological platforms are going to be best to employ to get everyone through this period of time. Okay. Um, and I think you've hit most of this, but are there any specific types of matters that are being limited by the courts because of what's going on? Yeah, so there have been foreclosure and eviction moratoriums across the country in various states. Um, some states that have implemented these types of moratoriums include, there's a lot of them, but include, for example, New York, Illinois, California, Indiana, Kentucky, Kansas, Louisiana, Michigan, and so on. Um, our state here in Florida has been considering this issue. Um, there also have been cities that have specifically issued emergency orders halting foreclosures or evictions or both. Um, some of those cities include New York City, Santa Fe, Philadelphia, Nashville, Phoenix, Seattle, and so on. Um, there have been, like, for example, here in Florida, many of the trial courts have halted foreclosure or eviction proceedings. And we've seen that here in Florida in Miami County, Osceola County, Broward County, Palm Beach County, Hillsborough County, where there's been some form of either uh, suspension of foreclosure filings and or eviction filings. Most of those suspensions currently go through mid-April. In some cases, they go through early May. Um, also, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have both 
suspended foreclosure and foreclosure-related evictions through mid-May, and um, FHA HUD has also suspended evictions and foreclosures through April. So we're seeing moratoriums going into place across the country. Um, there is variation in how those are being implemented. In some places, they prevent filings from even occurring. That's currently the case in New York, um, where evictions can't be filed. Uh, in other places, though, it's merely extending the time for tenants to respond to evictions to avoid them, um, to avoid there being a default judgment entered for them not timely responding, which could lead to a writ of possession. So the implementation is varying, and we're seeing changes in how that's being uh, enforced and carry out every day. So the best advice is basically contact your local jurisdiction to figure out exactly what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Donald. Yeah, so um, first, uh, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I, I'm going to have a question for uh, David Karp um, at the end of this. Maybe he can answer it and mull it over. And, and that is sort of, you know, this is a lender call, and, and what can a lender do to sort of insert themselves into the process where the government is, you know, sort of injecting itself into some collateral that you have an interest in? I know in that that California case that we're involved with, it's a hospital case called Verity. <clears throat> you know, the, the debtor with consent of the secured creditor negotiated a contract with the government to open up a closed hospital for this corona and they got compensation for it, but it was heavily negotiated. It was insufficient to sort of offset the the, the expenses of doing so, but it but it was enough to at least um, make it worthwhile. And so, um, you know, David, maybe you can mull over what, what can a lender do if if that threat's happening? Yeah, I, I can see it happening with healthcare facilities, um, you know, hotels that are closed, things like that. But you know, in terms of forbearances. Um, Rick, I know you were thinking about what are we seeing here? I mean, we're seeing a lot of those requests. You know, certainly there is a ton of stuff moving from the master to the special if if, if we're in that world. Um, you know, I don't know if, if we can say that there's an industry norm in terms of the time, but it seems to me that three seems to be the most uh, utilized period of time, but there's no one-size-fits-all. I can tell you, for instance, you know, we have one – relationship where uh, they're extending out to six months. And, you know, I thought about it a little bit, and I think that that could make a lot of sense. I remember back in the forbearance days, you know, back in nine and 10, you know, sometimes it would take two to three weeks to negotiate a fair forbearance, and then you're right back at it. It seems like a month and a half later, and so you only have a month or two for relief. Maybe six months makes sense, uh, especially since it's unclear how long this is going to cycle through. So query whether six months makes sense, but I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all for sure. Um, so that that's kind of where things are at with forbearances. And in terms of, you know, what, what, what are some of the things you can build into the forbearance? It occurs to me um, that uh, there's a lot of toxic assets potentially out there. You know, years ago, people didn't want to have a lot of real estate on their books um, because of, you know, environmental issues and so forth while you're trying to decide what to do with it. But, you know, in the last 12 or 14, 15 years, you know, the type of toxic assets from your borrowers is 
has changed and proliferated. And and certainly these days, um, you know, as toxic as anything else is if somebody throws you the keys, what are you going to do with their computer systems and their software and their files, which may contain all types of uh, healthcare issues, you know, if it's a healthcare provider, you have HIPAA concerns, all kinds of personal financial records. I know I was involved in a case years ago where, um, you know, the big banks were all involved and there was a lot of concern about how you take care of data that the big banks had and how you destroy it. There's very clear guidelines on how you get rid of personal financial information. Um, it's very specific. So I think one thing to, to think about is, you know, getting your, you know, your arsenal, so to speak, of fiduciaries, you know, middle middle people to buffer you from whatever asset you might have to take back, and make sure that they have the the proper skill sets to deal with, you know, those types of toxic assets. Or if it's airplanes, you know, we're starting to see your airplane deals go belly up again. You know, are they the correct operators that know what they're doing with airplanes? Um, so perhaps building into um, a forbearance, you know, if uh, some type of mechanism where there's an agreed receivership with an agreed receiver already in place that you don't, you can either abbreviate a court proceeding or otherwise because receivership hearings can be so intensive, so contested, so evidentiary, so costly, all of those things, anything you can do to abbreviate that to minimize costs and, and sort of reduce your list, uh, your risk, I think should be something to think about right now, Rick. Okay. Um, what about getting emergency relief, Donald? Um, is that possible? Say that again? What about getting emergency relief? Is that possible? Well, you, you know, I think it's uh, to Alexandra's point, you know, <clears throat> there's a little bit of give and take. The courts are, you know, in a state of flux right now. And, you know, what is defined as an emergency, um, you know, always changes by jurisdiction, by date, by time, by court. You know, if it's a piece of property that you just that that's not, you know, at risk, um, is that an emergency right now? Some courts would say yes. Other courts will say absolutely not. And so I think you just have to, you know, frame your um, frame your forbearance and get your agreements in place to, to deem it an emergency, at least by the debtor consent, so they don't they don't fight it. And then you take your best shot at it, and and you can bake into whatever you want in a forbearance agreement to give you these protections. But, you know, whether a court will do it or not is one thing. But if you don't have opposition from your borrower, that, that certainly goes a long way. And, 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 Rick, one last thing I did want to mention before maybe David can address this um, this taking issue, and that is leases. You know, um, I would keep a special eye on any borrower that has a very important lease that that it is um, involved with because if there's a default on that lease – and there's a termination event, and then there's a bankruptcy, that lease is gone. Um, you cannot resurrect a lease in bankruptcy. So, you know, if there is a very important lease for your borrower and their business, um, you know, make sure you keep an eye on that because it could be that the landlord wants to get out of that lease for whatever reason. And if they lose the lease, if it's terminated under applicable law and there's a bankruptcy, that's sort of the end of it in terms of that lease. And that could be uh, a significant issue for any borrower. Oh, thank you, Donald. David, do you do you have any thoughts on Donald's question? David? Okay, yeah, we may I, have lost. I, I, oh, I, I, go ahead. Rick, you there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Thanks for the question, Donald. I mean, I think the first thing that a lender would do is obviously look at the loan agreement. And many, if not most, loan agreements have some provision for assignment of rents or assignment of certainly an inverse condemnation award from the state. And so um, assuming that the loan agreements provide for that type of relief, that would be the first place to start. Um, obviously, it's a different situation if you're not in bankruptcy or if you're not in default than, than if you are, such as in your, your hospital case, your hospital bankruptcy case in California. And so obviously it serves the interest of both the borrower and the lender to active and to try to negotiate a solution, you know, before you, before you get into a default situation. Um, you know, I would also say that any prospect of inverse condemnation awards is going to be way down the pike. So for lenders or borrowers who need immediate relief, the idea of getting some sort of takings award anytime soon is pretty remote and that time might be better spent trying to negotiate the payment or negotiate um, for some sort of solution on the debt. Okay. So Rick, if, you want, if, if you, sure. This is Alexandra, if I could just add one. Sure. Rick, if I could just jump in to add one quick point on that. Um, in some jurisdictions, there are relevant statutes on point that in a condemnation proceeding, a mortgagee is entitled to participate. For example, New Jersey is one state where that's, um, there are laws that allow for that. There are other states, however, where that's not the case. Uh, Pennsylvania is an example. So it is important on a state-by-state -state level to you know, investigate further the laws in place in those particular states, some of which do allow for the mortgagees to participate. Um, some do allow the mortgagee to seek uh, an apportionment of the condemnation award. So um, in those instances, there might be further opportunities for the lenders to participate. Thank, thanks, Alexandra. Ray, what can a client do to verify that their employee is in fact impacted by COVID-19 and eligible for state or federal COVID-19 related work entitlements or something else? Uh, yeah, so switching gears uh, somewhat and talking about some of the labor and employment issues that um, we're all dealing with now, um, your question really goes to what questions an employer may ask about COVID-19 related health issues. So the EEOC, which is the federal agency that enforces the Americans with Disabilities Act and other related federal non-discrimination laws, uh, recently, in recent days and weeks, has issued updated guidance, both written and in the form of a uh, pre-recorded webinar that was released to the public last Friday afternoon that addresses uh, what employers can ask employees about illness that may be related to COVID-19. Um, just at the outset, you all should know that um, the EEOC in that pre-recorded webinar said explicitly that, and I quote, it is unclear at this time whether COVID-19 is or could be a disability under the ADA. So that's important because, you know, in addition to reasonable accommodation obligations that employers have, uh, the ADA also restricts 
an employer's ability to ask employees certain questions, health-related questions, uh, even in the EEOC's view, at least, uh, of individuals who may not actually be disabled. So before even asking questions, it's important to just understand that. But with that said, um, essentially the EEOC in the written guidance and uh, what they posted in the the uh, pre-recorded webinar essentially has relaxed its interpretation of these pre-employment or these uh, disability-related um, medical inquiries and health-related questions somewhat in light of, you know, pandemics like COVID-19. And essentially what it said is that during a pandemic like COVID-19, um, employers are allowed to ask employees if they're experiencing symptoms. So in the case of COVID-19, symptoms would include, as the CDC and health authorities have outlined, fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, that sort of thing. At the same time, it's really important for employers to remember, and the EEOC reinforces this in the most recent guidance and updated guidance that it's released um, related to coronavirus, that all of that information that you're um, collecting uh, about employees, even if, you know, you're asking legitimately, it's still subject to the ADA's confidenti confidentiality uh, provisions. So it's really important to ensure that the information is, is shared only on a need-to-know basis, that it's segregated from other sort of regular routine employment and personnel records that might be in a personnel file, either um, hard copy or um, electronic or virtual and, and that sort of thing. So um, the answer is it depends on um, what reason you're asking and um, the types of questions that you're asking. Um, as a follow-up, if um, a COVID-19-related health issue is confirmed, does the employer have to provide the employee with paid leave even when he or she is working from home already? That's a great question. So if an employee has been working from home but is no longer able to work because um, COVID-19-related illness, either his own or that of a family member, then um, if you're covered by state or federal paid leave requirements and the employee is entitled to those benefits, you may well have to provide the leave. The key question here, though, is whether due to the COVID-19 illness, the employee is unable to work. So depending on the severity of his uh, or her infection, um, you know, the individual may be unable to work at all, in which case you may have to consider providing any paid leave um, that may be available. Um, obviously, if they're suffering from minor symptoms and feel comfortable enough and, uh, you know, express a desire to continue to work from home, then uh, that's an option as well. Uh, obviously, you don't have to force them to take paid leave. But if they're no longer able to work um, and have asked to utilize available paid leave, then that's something that you ought to consider. Um, what if paid leave is unavailable and the employee is expected to be ill or absent for two weeks or more? Can an employer terminate employment in that situation? Uh, it depends. So um, just 
as a reminder, just because the federal paid leave provisions don't or may not apply, or maybe the employee isn't in a state or locality with uh, its own paid leave provisions, that doesn't mean that he or she isn't entitled to unpaid leave that uh, is job protected, for instance, under the federal FMLA or a state law equivalent. Uh, remember, too, and I don't know how many federal government contractors are participating today, but if you're a contractor subject to the paid leave executive order that came out a few years ago, uh, the employee may be entitled, obviously, to use any accrued paid leave um, for these purposes as well, even if you're not subject to the federal emergency paid leave mandates that were enacted um, in the last couple of weeks in response to COVID-19. And then <laughs> we all know that on uh, over the weekend, uh, the CARE Act was uh, signed into law. How is that affecting all of this in terms of labor and employment issues? Well, you know, the CARES Act doesn't impact, for instance, the general availability of COVID-19 related paid leave that was um, provided or has been provided for in the Families First uh, law, the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act but it is important to the extent that it uh, offers or may offer covered businesses some, you know, really desperately needed loan assistance and other relief to help cushion some of the financial impact that these new mandates and uh, other crisis-related issues have um, come to bear or have impacted those companies. Thanks, Ray. So, Dan, one, thanks for jumping on this at the last minute as a substitute speaker. Um, everybody's scrambling to understand the scope of the CARE Act and, and what it covers and what it doesn't cover. And I know you've been looking at this from real estate perspective, both on the lending side as well as on the owner side. Um, and, and so I've got a couple of questions for you in that regard. Can small businesses get loans under the CARE Act uh, that can be used to make their lease payments? And if so, is that limited to any industries? Yeah, so let me take a step back. So the, it's an enormous, the CARES Act is an enormous piece of legislation, $2 trillion, as everybody knows, and it's beyond sort of the, the scope of this call, but to go do a deep dive into it. But this is a lender's call, and as lenders are getting, uh, as their borrowers are looking to the lenders to say, I need relief, I need help, now they have the CARES Act that can give them some of that. So, and there's multiple parts. What I'm going to be touching on today is this, this payroll or the Paycheck Protection Program that you've probably all been hearing about. And that's got um, uh, – that, that is a true sort of federal cherry there for us to, 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 to – for your uh, borrowers to use. And this, the PPP or this Payroll Protection Program does give you loans that can – uh, to your to your specific question, Rick, whether it can be made for they can use that for their lease payments and uh, in in a particular industry, yeah, sure, they absolutely could. Uh, the the PPP portion of the CARES Act allows you to borrow money to pay for a host, primarily as you might imagine by the name of it, the payroll. For it's designed to uh, to be utilized to pay your payroll, but it's broader than that. It's a sal it's employee salaries, um, it's interest on your mortgage obligations, or conversely on rent. You, t you can use it for utilities. 
You can use it for other debt obligations. So the, the short, or actually very long answer to your probably pretty short question is, yeah, you can use, you, could, you can direct your borrowers to that program, say, uh, make application, and those proceeds, or the, the, the proceeds of those, of, that, of those loans could be used to pay interest, could be used to pay lease payments, payroll, et cetera. And if they, so uh, with regard to those payments, under the Act, some um, of those loans are for, uh, can be forgiven the obligations and some can't. If you use uh, the proceeds of those loans to make, you know, P&I payments or lease payments or payments to, you know, operate your property, is that, uh, are those types of loans, uh, can they be forgiven under the Act? Yeah, so the, so the, 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 that is, everyone's getting really excited about these loan forgiveness portions of the Act, and it's, and it's designed, it's, it's limited to eight weeks, so the forgiveness on a covered loan is going to be equal to the sum of the payroll costs uh, and, the in, um, and the other um, lease payments, et cetera, uh, utility payments, in, that, uh, in a comparable eight-week period to last year, 2019. So they've... Um, so it's not it's not infinite, right? It's trying to get us by what what Congress is hoping is going to be the most intense part of this crisis, which is the first eight weeks. But those um, um, uh, those expenses that I covered earlier would be able to be forgiven um, uh, during that uh, during those first eight weeks. So it really is sort of free money. So if you're directing, if you're if you're you're sort of uh, accustomed to being lots of strings attached on, on government um, uh, rescue packages, this this forgiveness portion is about as generous as I've seen. And, and again, the the these loans are limited to certain types of um, of businesses, correct? In terms of size and um, revenue and the like. Yeah, I should go into it. So it's it's all small businesses. So it's under it's under 500 employees, and there's. Uh, yeah, we don't have the time on this call to get into it, but obviously, but there's affiliates. So if you've got a lot of, if you've got a lot of special, you know, SPEs with each with a few employees, but they aggregate to more than 500, you might, you know, they 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 want to make sure this is uh, for small businesses primarily uh, or exclusively, um, and um, but any business within there. So if it's if it's uh, you know hotel retail. Um, Multifamily, all of those uh, would, as long as they qualify for under 500 employees and the other requirements, would all be eligible. And uh, just to give a plug, you're working on with a bunch of others, including myself, like a, a cheat sheet to answer some of these questions for our clients, correct? Right. So there's, it's, you know, all you would have to do, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, our competitors, there's a lot of information. You've probably been, everybody on this call has probably been barred with you know, probably hundreds by now, even though this legislation is just days old. You've probably received hundreds of emails of summaries and things. And what we're trying to do is go a little bit deeper, but not too deep, and more of a frequently asked questions to get, uh, to, and that also cite the provision of the, um, of the CARES Act. With the thought being is that you're not going to, you don't really need, or you don't, your, your, your borrowers are not going to need to really lawyer up. This is meant to be pretty simple and pretty fast. But, um, for those who may be interested in those industries, it's sort of look at the question and then sort of get you, so again, a little bit deeper than maybe most of our competitors are covering things, so that you can take that to your uh, to your SBA lender 
or your your accountant because there's also documentation needed in, um, on this. And if you're like, listen, I'm going to the bank and I need this, I you know we're we're trying to make it as easy as possible, but not uh, overwhelm you with information. So we'll have, well, and that'll probably go up in the next day or two. Is we're we're getting lots of questions from clients. We're putting it into this frequently asked question document, and then we will um, have that there on our website so everybody can take advantage of it. Thanks, Dan. Um, we're going to open it up for questions now. We received one by email, and it was um, the question was, and I'll read it, and, and I think I can answer it, and Donald gave some of the answers to this. Uh, since Naral Shah from Rialto wasn't able to join us today, can we get some update on the topic of demand for forbearance? I was on a call at 11 o'clock today with the CREFC Services Forum, and all of the masters and specials said they've been inundated with requests for forbearance. Uh, we're talking about thousands of loans at this point in time. Um, some of them are in default. A lot of them are not yet. Uh, it could be a situation of imminent default because the next payments are due in, in April, May payments were made. So in that regard, there is a, a huge, there's a lot of this going on and the servicers are trying to get their best handle around that. Um, and as Donald said, there's not one size that fits all. Um, if you have a question, if you can unmute your line, uh, we'll try to answer it. Uh, it's pound, pound, one to unmute your line once you ask your question. If you can then uh, mute, we'd appreciate it. Anyone? Well then, um, we don't want to keep everyone on the line. We hope that this was helpful. Um, we are recording this so that it can be turned into a podcast. Um, I would, again, uh, thank our speakers today, uh, David Carr, uh, Alexandra Bly, Donald Kirk, Ray Vaughn, and Dan Weedy. And again, I'd refer you to our firm's uh, weekly digest on issues involving uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19 www.carltonfield.com backslash services backslash practices backslash coronavirus. Um, if we get demand uh, from the listeners, we may do another one of these, but we hope we've been able to answer a lot of the practical issues and questions that you had and have to face over the last couple of weeks. And with that, uh, we're going to sign off. Thanks for everybody. You've been listening to the Carlton Fields podcast series. For information and business guidance on issues related to the coronavirus, visit our Coronavirus Resource Center at carltonfields.com forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.